The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The scripture text uh, for today's sermon is from Genesis 20, verses 1 through 18. We're continuing in Genesis, Genesis 20, verses 1 through 18. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and that they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say to me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you, your brother, a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who, you, who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Here we are before your word again, Father. And I'm acutely aware of my own inadequacies. But we trust in you. Not in my ability to expound upon it, but we ask you to take your word and drive it deep into our hearts so that we would hear what you have to say to us this morning. 
So let your word be exalted and help us exult over your word as we praise you and worship you around what you have to say in this text to us this morning. Come and meet us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are two great mysteries that Christians of nearly all persuasions have wrestled with through much of church church history. One is the relationship of God's sovereign control over all things and our free will to do what we want. And the other is the question of why we struggle with sin so much, often repeating the same sins we've repented of before, even after we've been born again, filled with the Spirit, and all the stuff that regeneration entails. Why do we do that? Now, the first of those great mysteries can seem rather esoteric and theological, and maybe it's more abstract than many of us are used to thinking about. But the second is eminently practical, and I'll bet every one of us wrestles with it almost every day. So we're going to see these two great mysteries, these themes, come together in our text today. The first maybe has more application to our lives than we might think. And the second, I think, has comfort from the scripture to help us in our struggle. And both of them together are going to help us see that God is a God who cannot be thwarted in fulfilling his plans and purposes. The prophet Isaiah quotes God, who says, from Isaiah 46, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. That's a lot of eyes in there. God is going to do it. Well, that pretty well summarizes the main theme of our passage today. We've seen it from the fall in the garden. Again and again, God has promised to bring forth a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. Remember that promise way back in the early chapters of Genesis in chapter 3. And despite the sinfulness of humanity, both believers and unbelievers, God has been at work to keep his covenant promises. We've seen it over and over again. And as we look at this passage today, we're going to see it again. So let's, I'm going to break the passage down into three parts. So first, we're going to look at Abraham's repeat failure and God's sovereign intervention to, in overruling a pagan king to keep the promises intact. So that's in verses 1 to 7. Second part, we'll see the excuse-laden response when Abraham gets confronted about this and how familiar, I hope you feel how familiar that's going to seem to us. And that's verses 8 to 13. Third, We'll see God continue to be faithful to his promise to bless Abraham despite his failures and flaws here. And then along the way, I want you to watch for how God's plans and purposes cannot be thwarted, whether by pagan kings or by his own people, and how the Lord is so gracious to his people in their failures. 
And then we'll see, try to wrap it up by looking at, at how all that applies to our walk of faith today. So this first part of the passage I titled, New Name, Same Old Sin, God Still Reigns. That's verses 1 through 7. One of the things I appreciate most about scripture is that it doesn't paint rosy pictures of our heroes of the faith, right? It's honest, sometimes really brutally so, regarding the sins and failures of some of God's most choice servants. And what that tells me is that these are real people struggling with real things, just like you and I. They struggle with sinful patterns of living. They struggle with real-life problems. And, and when we look at the life of Abraham, we see a strange, and yet it's going to feel familiar pattern develop. It's this. Nearly every time God comes and gives this promise that he's given to Abraham over and over, Abraham falls into sin. Almost very shortly afterwards. Let's trace this out. Back in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God gave his initial covenant promise to Abram, as he was called at that point. And initially he follows and he goes out to the promised land. But by verse 10 of chapter 12, what happens? There's a famine and he's afraid and he runs to Egypt. And what does he do there? The very same thing he does here. He lies about his wife. He's willing to throw Sarai, throw away his marriage to Sarai to save his own skin. Well, God intervenes and prevents Pharaoh from marrying her. Praise the Lord. Then we come to chapter 15. And you remember in chapter 15 how God renewed his covenant with Abraham. And he splits those animals. Abraham cuts those animals in half. And God passes between them with this pillar of fire cementing this covenant promise. But what happens right after that? We have chapter 16, and what happens there? Abram and Sarai try to help God out with these promises, right? So, and that we have that little Hagar incident. That didn't go so well. Then in chapters 17 and 18, which we've just looked at over the last two, three weeks... God does a lot of things in those chapters. First, he changes their names from Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. And don't forget the significance of a name change in the ancient world. A person's name was closely associated with their identity. So what God is doing here is he's making Abraham's new name closely identify with the promises that God has made to him. The new name means father of a multitude. And it's in keeping with God's promise to make Abraham a father of many nations. And God reiterates the promise in these chapters. And he expands the promise even more. And he cements that promise with the sign of circumcision. And he makes it really specific. He gets really specific right down to the name that the baby will be given when it's born. And the time that it's going to be born, about a year Later. Now, last week we looked at chapter 19 with the Sodom and Gomorrah thing. And that's kind of a parenthetical thing. And it, it, there's a lot there. And, and Rick touched on so much of that. 
I'm not going to rehash that, but I want you to get the time frame down here. How, much, how little time has gone by between chapter 18, verse 14, where God has, is just finishing up this lunch with Abraham. Can you imagine that? God comes to your house and has lunch with you. God Almighty. And he promises them a son about a year later. Now think about the time frame here. Nine months of pregnancy, right? So that means Sarah's got to get pregnant in about the next three months from chapter 18, verse 14. What do we find in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2? Abraham is wandering around in the Negev. That's the desert region in the southern part of what would later be Israel. He's landing in a couple of different towns, and he winds up in Gerar, where this incident with Abimelech happens. And all that occurs within about a three-month period from that lunch. Okay? Now, you would think, after all the lessons that Abraham has learned, all the ups and downs of his faith, that his faith now is rock solid. He's just had lunch with God. He's seen specific promises right down to the time the baby's going to be born. No way he's going to fall in sin now, right? Well, not only does he fall in sin, but it's a rerun of the same sin from way back in chapter 12. That's amazing to me. <laughs> he just does the same thing. And he's doing it after far more clear and specific revelation from God. It seems that no matter how clearly God speaks, Abraham just doesn't get it. And I just got to be honest, isn't that so like me? Like you? Like us? Don't we find so often that we're in this lifelong battle with sin that frustrates us with how often we're willing to give in to it? And how often it is that at our highest points in our spiritual life, just after some mountaintop experience with God, we just come down from that mountain and there's sin waiting for us at the bottom to get us. Even though we've been born again, we've been given a new identity in Christ like Abraham was given a new name. We've been adopted as a child of God. There's that sinful tendency rising up again. But there's an even bigger problem here for Abraham. Sin threatens not only his own spiritual life, but to derail the very promises of God. If Abimelech, like Pharaoh back in chapter 12, succeeds and takes Sarah as his wife, the promise that God made that Sarah would bear a child the next year would not be fulfilled. Abraham will not become the father of a multitude, the promised line of the Messiah would be broken. God's plan to glorify himself by creating a new humanity through his son, Jesus Christ, who is descended from Abraham, would fail. Now, when this happened back in chapter 12, maybe we could chalk it up to immaturity and ignorance on Abraham's part. Remember, he was a relatively new believer in this new God at that time. But here we are, 25 years have passed, and Abraham's learned a lot of lessons along the way. He should know better. He should have learned something from that incident back in Egypt. How did he not learn anything there? The very covenant of God is at stake. All right, now before we look at details, 
I want to ask a question. Who is this Abimelech guy? Just a little background here. Well, it says he's the king of Gerar. That's a city in the southern portion of what would later be the territory of the Philistines. And like we saw back in chapter 14 in that battle of the kings, these are more like mayors of cities than leaders of entire nations. It's unclear. Uh, You can check out commentaries, differing opinions on whether the term Abimelech is a proper name or title, such as Pharaoh or Caesar. We, we see in Abimelech later in chapter 26 encounter Isaac with much the same, another repeat. Um, that was probably either the son of this Abimelech or someone with the same title. Either way, this Abimelech is kind of the leader in these here parts. Now, that brings us to verse 3. And that begins with these two words. But God. But God. We love those two words around here. They ought to be your two favorite words in the Bible. They show up many times. I went through and kind of did a search on all the times those two words show up. And nearly every time they do, it describes God sovereignly intervening to accomplish his purposes. He's about to do something to continue his purposes, to keep things on track. God cannot be thwarted. Not by Abraham, not by Abimelech, not by anyone. So God appears to Abimelech in a dream. Now remember, Abimelech is a pagan. He doesn't know this God. He probably worshipped a bunch of different gods. So he didn't know the true and living God before this. But God comes to him and says, how would you like this to be the first words you ever hear from God? Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman you have taken. For she is a man's wife. Okay then. Wow. Now, notice how Abimelech responds. The first word out of his mouth in verse 4. It's the word Lord. I find that really interesting. It's the Hebrew word Adonai. We're familiar with that. It's one of the most commonly used titles for God in the Old Testament. Somehow, Abimelech seems to instinctively know who this is. He knows that it's not one of his own gods. Listen, when the true God speaks, it, it reminded me of that, of, of that incident with Saul on the road to Damascus, and he's fighting against Jesus, and the Lord comes and knocks him off his horse, and he says, Lord, who are you? <laughs> Well, he knows who it is, right? Abimelech knows who this is. When the true God speaks, there's no doubt who you're dealing with. So with trembling, he responds, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now, as we learned back in chapter 12, there was probably a preparation period before Sarah would have been officially brought into Abimelech's harem as his wife. And so the marriage hadn't been consummated yet, and Abimelech wants to make sure God knows this. Now, I want you to notice God's response to that. He allows that Abimelech was doing what he was doing in the integrity of his heart in verse 6. But then he informs Abimelech, it was I who kept you from sinning. 
Abimelech may thought his choices to do or not do something and the timing of it all was his. But God says it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. There's those eyes again. God is at work here. Now then return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return or know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So the threat still stands. Now Abimelech may think he's just lucky that the preparation process for Sarah isn't over yet. But from God's perspective, it was God himself who prevented Abimelech from committing this sin. God is intervening to keep his promises on track. He cannot be thwarted. We have to always recognize the sovereign omnipotence of God in all things. We need to have eyes to see that God is behind all the things that happen each day in one way or another. Even the decisions and actions, or in this case the inactions, of unbelievers, believers, Anybody. Abimelech may think that his innocence was his own, but God says that it was because of him that Abimelech didn't sin. Maybe think, you know, often we hear people complain. This is a great um, challenge to Christianity that unbelievers like to throw out. Why would a good God allow so much sin in the world? Why would a good God allow so much sin? Now, that's, that is an important question. I don't want to gloss over it. But have you ever thought about how much sin God prevents in the world each day? We don't always see or understand how seemingly unrelated and insignificant things could advance or hinder God's eternal purposes. We tend to see events only from a human and earthly perspective. But God is working all of that together to sum up all things in Christ, whether things in heaven or things on earth. All things serve his plans and purposes in some way. So, I want to turn that question around and just leave it in your mind. How much sin does God prevent in the world each day? Okay, part two. Rebuke and excuse. That's what I'll call this one. Verses 8 to 13. So Abimelech rises the next morning. He calls all his servants together. He tells them about this dream. And scripture tells us they are very much afraid. So Abimelech confronts Abraham. And he says, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom this a great sin? And here's the rebuke. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Now, kids, I think you can relate to this. Do you think Abimelech has a right to be angry here? Yes. What do you, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I sure do. Abraham's sin nearly got Abimelech killed. And it put his whole household under God's judgment. Think about it this way, kids. If your brother or sister told you something that, that wasn't quite the whole truth, and you acted on that in a way that got you in trouble with your parents, would you be mad at your brother or sister for that? Yeah, yeah. Well, Abraham answers with three excuses. I see three excuses here, and they all feel a little too familiar to me. 
First, he says he was afraid. Verse 11. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, wait a minute. Just back in verse 8, we saw that all the men of Abimelech's household were very much afraid. So I want to ask, who's really fearing God here and who's fearing man? What kind of fear are we dealing with? Abraham says there's no fear of God in this place. I would say Abimelech is fearing God more than Abraham. And Abraham's fearing man more than God. This fear in Abraham, like back in chapter 12, is born of a lack of trust in God. And it's even more incredible now because Abraham has witnessed God being faithful to him again and again and again. Even after all of that faithfulness, the fear is still there. But it feels familiar, doesn't it? Are there fears in your life that you've dealt with time and time again, even though you know God is faithful? Yet you give in to that fear, give in to that sin, and the sin that grows out of that fear, you give in to it repeatedly. If that's your experience, you know exactly what Abraham is experiencing here. And you've probably used an excuse like this too. His second excuse It was a partial truth. Verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now, I don't remember where this quote comes from. I've heard it several times in my life, so I I wish I could attribute it to the original author. Maybe you've heard it too. It goes something like this. A half-truth told as if it's the whole truth with intent to misrepresent something, is an untruth. A half-truth, told as if it's the whole truth, is an untruth. In other words, it's a lie. We see this go on all the time among our political leaders, don't we? They call it spin. They don't call it lying, they call it spin. We've seen it in our kids. They tell just enough of the truth to make themselves look good. But don't we do the same thing too many times? What we relate is true as far as it goes, but we leave out certain relevant facts so as to produce a desired impression that might be different from what the bare, honest truth would produce. We might do it to make ourselves look better, or as in the case with Abraham here, we might do it because we're afraid of some undesirable consequences. Either way, this is just a subtle form of lying, and it's sin. Here's the third excuse. Look at verse 13. Uh, Notice the subtle blaming of God here. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. And did you catch that? It's like Adam back in the garden, right? The woman you gave me, God. See, it's really your fault, God. If you hadn't given me, given me this woman, I wouldn't have failed. And Abraham's saying, if God hadn't caused me to wander, I wouldn't have had to make up this cockamamie story. So it's really kind of God's fault, isn't it? All right, well, let's see God's response here. And And I'm just amazed at this. Verses 14 to 18. 
Sometimes we think when we fail, God is standing there waiting to beat us over the head with a stick or maybe with a Bible. We might be tempted to think here that God is going to punish Abraham for his sin and he might suffer some harsh consequences. But what we see is what Paul talks about in Romans 5.20 when he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So not only does Abimelech return Sarah to Abraham, but he, God moves him to bless Abraham with sheep and oxen and male and female servants. These were the signs of wealth in that culture. And he's already a rich man, right? And then, as if that's not enough, he pays Abraham a thousand pieces of silver as a sign of Sarah's innocence in the eyes of all. That's many times what he would have paid as a bride price. And then Abraham prays. He prays for Abimelech, and the Lord answers him. Now, you would think after this kind of failure that God would kind of be silent and not answer, but the Lord answers. He answers just as he promised he would back in chapter 7 when he told Abimelech, ask Abraham to pray for you. He's a prophet. He'll pray for you and you'll be healed. Now, verse 18 explains to us that God had closed all the wombs of, his, of Abimelech's household because of this incident. That's the first we learn that God's judgment against Abimelech had already begun, even as Sarah was still in the process of preparing to join the harem. But at Abimelech's prayer, God lifts his hand, just as he said he would, and Abraham leaves the story more wealthy than when he started. God is still hearing and answering his prayers. And I just want to encourage you that God still hears your prayers and answers your prayers even when you fail. You know, I just wonder how many times in my life I've blown it in sin in some way. Not only has the Lord protected me from bad consequences, he's even brought great blessing into my life. I think I often have trouble seeing it because the good that comes to me may not be obviously related to my sin. So let me, let me just clarify here, this is not a license to sin. And Paul puts that idea to rest in Romans chapter 6. So right after he says in chapter 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, he goes on to say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. Don't even think that way. But I want you to see the heart of God, how he's moved with compassion for his people, even in their failures. And since he's promised us an inheritance, just like he promised Abraham to make him a multitude of nations, he's promised us an inheritance. And he's often inclined to grant evidences of his grace to us rather than his displeasure, even when we fail. That's what the gospel is all about, right? We get forgiveness. We get eternal life. We get all the things that we don't deserve. That's what grace is. We get what we don't deserve. And given that, wouldn't gratitude and joy in our hearts well up and that, that such a kind-hearted God would treat us that way, that it would stir us to repent and seek greater joy in him rather than to continue on in our selfish sins? 
It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. All right. So, by way of application, what do we need to draw out of this that will help us in our walk of faith today? We've already seen a few things here. But I want to leave you with two things that grow out of those two deep questions that I mentioned at the beginning. How does God's sovereignty interact with our free will? That was the first one. And why do we still fall in sin so much, even after being saved and filled with the Spirit and all all that comes with salvation? And these two questions are related because, as we saw in our story today, both the decisions of believers and unbelievers, as well as the sinful decisions that even that we, the new covenant people make, can impact and even threaten God's sovereign plans and purposes. Now, we don't have to understand all the theological and philosophical intricacies of these questions. What I really want you to take from this are two applications for your life. So, number one, God cannot be thwarted. I'm just going to, I've said it several times, I'm going to say it again. He is sovereignly working all things to glorify himself. He intends to establish a kingdom where God's people are dwelling in God's place, enjoying God's presence. We've seen that again and again in Genesis. And nothing any earthly king or governing authority or any person can do or decide will thwart or frustrate that purpose. So presidents and princes and judges and courts and your boss at work and your neighbor and people who shoot people at July 4th parades, none of that can derail God's plans and purposes. Maybe the best example of this is the crucifixion of Christ. It's a perfect example of sinful, free will decisions of men being unable to thwart God's purposes. Not only being unable to thwart them, but actually fulfilling them. Think about that. I want you to put yourself in the, pic- in the place of the disciples, standing beneath the cross watching Jesus be crucified. So just in your imagination, put yourself there for a moment. If you were one of them, what would have been going through your mind? Everything you thought was true just got proved untrue. The guy you thought was the Messiah, who would restore Israel to greatness, who would defeat Rome, is hanging on a cross, dying. He could not deliver himself from false accusations and the evil plans of religious and secular leaders. How in the world could he deliver any of us from sin and death? you would never have known that at that very moment, God was actually accomplishing the central piece of his plan for your redemption. So don't be frightened or dismayed when you see evil win apparent victories in our world. God is not thwarted. He's not deterred. And I hope that provides great comfort and assurance in this uncertain world. It's what I got to lean on every day. If you're going to read the news, man, you got you to believe God is accomplishing his purposes. So that's the first application. Second, your own failures in the struggle with sin are redeemed with new covenant grace. Part of God's promise 
his, this, and this traces back to his promise to Abraham, part of God, because we're part of the nation that he's creating, right? We're, we're descendants of Abraham according to faith. We've seen that. The part of God's promise is his determination to bless you and bring you into his place to enjoy his presence for all eternity. Now, we've seen Abraham's faith rise and fall like a sine wave. (laughs) And we've seen him exercise times of great faith. And we've seen him fail in doubt and fear like we've looked at today. In other words, he's just like us. And as we've seen, seen today, even when we fall into the very same sin that we ought to know better than to fall into, it cannot thwart God's plans. And it does not change God's promises to us. Get this, it doesn't change his promises to you, and it doesn't change his attitude toward you. God had promised to bless Abraham and to make him the father of many nations. And that's what God has been doing ever since. And what's been God's response every time Abraham failed? He's come and reiterated the promise. He hasn't beat him over the head with a stick. He's reiterated the promise and deepened it and broadened it. And he's intervened sovereignly to keep the promise on track. Man, what the grace of God here is just incredible. I want you to notice something else. With all these ups and downs in Abraham's faith journey, and often he's followed up receiving renewed promises with great failure and sin, but this is the last time we see that in Abraham's life. We only learn of one more test in Abraham's life, and that's where God asks him to sacrifice Isaac, and he passes that test with flying colors. And then I want you to notice how Abraham is talked about in the New Testament. I couldn't find a single reference to any of Abraham's failures in all the New Testament. The closest we get is in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 and following, where a reference is made to the Hagar incident. Let me just read that. I'll read a small portion of it. Apostle Paul writes, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. There it is. That's the only hint that this was a sin of the flesh. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. I'll just stop there. I want you to notice that there's no condemnation for Abraham in this passage. Paul is only using these two sons of Abraham as an allegory for the difference between slavery under the law and the freedom in Christ. That's all he's doing. He's using it as an allegory. He's not using it to point out Abraham's sins. The New Testament spends no time dwelling on Abraham's failures. In Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham is a prime entry into the hall of faith. We read in chapter 11, verse 8, that he obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. No mention of the journey to Egypt and the lying about his wife there. No mention of the subsequent fear and failure. Verse 9 of Hebrews 11. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. 
living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. There's no mention of Hagar or the doubting at 99 years old or this Abimelech incident that we looked at today. No mention of Isaac or Jacob's many failures either. In fact, we see this throughout the entire New Testament regarding Old Testament saints all the time. There's no mention of David's little problem with Bathsheba. There's no mention of Moses being punished for striking the rock instead of speaking. Even Samson, this one is amazing to me, in in Hebrews 11, even Samson, one of the most selfish, narcissistic men ever to lead Israel, makes it into the hall of faith without a single mention of all his selfish sins. I I don't get that. I don't get that. Except that's new covenant grace. The blood of Jesus washes all of that away. You'd think these were sinless saints, and of course that's exactly what they are now. Why? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. What Jesus did on that cross reaches back through history, 4,000 years and more, all the way, even more, all the way to the garden and forward in history till Jesus returns. That's what the blood of Jesus does. The new covenant wipes away their failures before God and they are righteous before God and so are you and so am I. It's exactly what the Bible means when it tells us in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God really means it. When we are in God's place, enjoying God's presence, he will not be reminding you and me of our many failures. Even now, if you've blown it just this week with that same sin again, he's not coming to you with condemnation. I want you to think about that as we approach communion. He's coming with reminders of his promises. That's what, that's what communion is. It's a reminder of his promises to us. So you may have blown it again this week, but he comes with those reminders. He now knows you according to your new identity. And even though, like Abraham, you may blow it, and even in some of the same ways over and over again, there is grace. You can repent and return. There are open arms for you in our Heavenly Father's presence. So, listen, whether you're coming for the first time to Jesus, or you're coming back as a prodigal son, or having blown it again in that same lust, that same selfish, greedy thing, that same lie, Know that your failures cannot thwart God's plans and purposes, either on a universe-wide level or in your life. He will bring you safely to his heavenly kingdom. So come. Come knowing that there's no condemnation if you know Jesus, only new covenant mercy. Let's pray. Just confess, Lord, how needy I am. And how much I need you, I need your mercy. And I think that's probably true of every person in this room and every believer on this planet. So we come to you now as we prepare our hearts for the table.
We want to hear from you. You speak loving and gracious promises to us that there is therefore now no condemnation for us. How amazing, because we deserve condemnation. We deserve it well. Thank you for the grace that's found in the blood of Jesus. So bring us now into your presence as we come to this table and help us eat and drink with you and remember your death until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.